0: Good morning. It is a delight to see you here this morning. I say that sometimes and my head is down and I feel like I'm saying it. it's a delight to see you here this morning. I don't actually see you but it is great to be with you. We're thankful for your presence always and as always we are very thankful to our God who deserves our very best and we're thankful to praise him and to offer him the fruit of our lips and to commune with him and to study portion of His Word. If you're in Genesis chapter 4, that'll be fantastic. That's where we will begin our sermon this morning. We are studying questions that God asked man, and we're trying to learn uh, what those questions were about, what He intended when He asked them, and therefore ultimately what we can learn from those questions. Uh, In doing so, as you know, I've been battling with speed and other thing, and trying to disseminate information, and uh, someone was talking to me the other day, and they were telling me some information that was, it felt like a fire hydrant was opened, and it was just bursting into my face. Have you ever had that experience where it's just coming fast and furious, and that's the way I've been feeling like I've been preaching, and so I've been trying to slow that down and and provide uh, a good amount of information, but not overly so. And so this morning, if, if it sounds like I'm talking, that's only the way it feels to me. <laughs> that's the only way it feels to me. But I'm going to try to slow down, not, not really just in pace and that sort of thing, but in volume of material. That's really what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm trying to, to get you the right amount of material at a, a rate that you can absorb it, process it, hold on to it, and ultimately it has meaning and, and usefulness to you. And so, if you would this morning take this sermon as the introduction to the sermon next week, <laughs> because we're not going to get to the questions today. And the reason we're not is this is the introduction to how we get to those questions, and that's what we'll talk about. Now, I don't mind telling you that uh, the world sometimes motivates me. It causes me to think. It forces me to reconsider sometimes. Uh, The world just is bent on wrongdoing and sin and in opposition to God. That's just the way it is. And the world is consistent and relentless. Every day we wake up, they're faithful to do what they do, and that is oppose God, oppose His cause and His people. Their commitment is of such a nature that living in the world every day the way they are committed to do what they do. And they use all manners of of wiles and schemes. Sometimes they are very forceful and confrontational. Other times they're very manipulative and kind. But in the end, they're doing it. And over time, it has an effect on God's people. And sure enough, some of us begin to believe them. And we find ourselves siding with them. And before you know it, It has reached the the Lord's people, and the opposition that is without sometimes is found to be within. And we're hearing the same arguments and the same words and the same phrases from Christians as you hear from non-Christians. I'm telling you that because being aware of that has this effect. As a gospel preacher, I am very clear about what I'm supposed to do when I stand up before you. It demands a clarity of speech. You need to know what God says and what God does not say. And it needs to be couched in words you understand. They don't need to be minced. They don't need to be softened. They don't need to be vague. You need what God says. That's really what the Bible enjoins. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be instant, urgent, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. In fact, he says the time will come when they will not endure it. They won't stand up against it. They won't want to hear it. And you need to be urgent about it, Timothy, and every gospel preacher thereafter. I'm very clear on my obligations to God. I hope you're equally as clear on yours. As New Testament Christians, you have an obligation to learn God. In fact, I think it's safe to say if we had to boil the Bible down to one thing, that's really what God wants you to do. He wants you to know him. And so he's revealed himself, made himself known. But God also then wants you to be changed. And so he wants you to live like him, thus the mind of Christ. You think like God and then God wants you to live like that. But more than that, God wants you to love the brethren. In fact, John talks about it in terms of passing from life to death because we love the brethren. The Bible places the, hay, the same high level of treatment of our brethren as it does between husbands and wives. We're to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's how much we're to love one another. Jesus says as an evangelistic tool. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We learn God. We live like God. We love one another, and then we light the world. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. I hope you appreciate your very real obligation as a New Testament Christian. We're studying questions God asks and the meaning of those questions. Both Paul and Peter tell us they wrote to put the brethren in remembrance. They wrote and they did it. And Paul told Timothy, if you put the brethren in remembrance, and so it might be the case that the things we talk about this morning, you know already. Well, that'll be fine. We'll be putting you in remembrance, doing exactly what Scripture enjoins. It's one of the reasons the Old Testament is written. Romans 15:4, Paul wrote to those brethren, whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning." that we, through comfort and patience of the Scripture, might have hope. It is the case that God intends for us to learn the Old Testament. He doesn't want us to live under it, but He wants us to learn from it. And He wants us to learn at least two things from it. Number one, He wants us to learn from the bad and unfaithful lives of Old Testament saints so that we don't emulate them. If you have your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And listen to what Paul writes to the brethren there in Corinth. It's one of the reasons that the Old Testament is given. Beginning there in verse number 6, he says, Now, these things happened unto them. They happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Now, what you and I didn't read is the first five verses. What is it that Paul is saying? Go back and look at verse 1 and read down to verse 5. Notice the word all in that section. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all, there's our first time, they all were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank of the spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, you see the word all there because he's referencing Exodus 14. You see, even here, he's referencing the Old Testament. And what he's talking about is them coming out of Egyptian bondage. And he says, when they got to the sea, they all went through it. And that's absolutely right. And you know what that means is that Exodus 14, 30 and 31 says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day. What that means is, All Israel was saved. In fact, he will liken it to here to baptism, which also says they were saved after being baptized. It's not a new thing. They were all passed through the cloud and through the sea. They were all baptized unto Moses. They were all saved. Why is this significant? The very next verse. Paul says, nevertheless, with most of them, all of those saved people, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. What that means is most of them didn't make it to the promised land. Our promised land is heaven. And what he's telling them is they were all saved. They all partook of the bread. They all partook of the drink. It's Christ. You know what they're doing in Corinth? They're having uh, bread and drink and they're abusing it. What's he warning them about? Listen, brethren, you were all saved just like they all were. Most of them didn't make it. If you persist in this action, Most of you won't make it. How does he get that point across? Old Testament. Verse number six, these things happen unto them, for examples. Verse number 11, these things happen unto them, for examples. They're written to us upon whom the end of the ages come. He wants them, the New Testament saints, to learn from the Old Testament and don't do what they did. Well, that's one of the reasons. The second reason is positive in nature. That is, there were faithful people back there. And so, learn from them and emulate their faith. You could see that in Hebrews chapter 11, where all of those faithful individuals are named. But for whom are they written? They're written to New Testament Christians who are struggling with their faith. And he uses Old Testament examples of faith. And he says to them, you need the kind of faith that Abel had and Noah had and Abraham and Sarah, and all the way through that chapter. New Testament saints struggling with faith? You need to learn from the Old Testament and emulate the faith of these faithful individuals. In fact, verse number 13 of that chapter says, these all died in faith. Why do we have the Old Testament? At least in part, two reasons. We can learn from those who were unfaithful and avoid it, learn from those who were faithful, and emulate it. I say all that as we go into Genesis chapter 4. We're trying to learn some things from the Old Testament. Let me provide you several important facts as we move forward toward our study. Number one, the revelation of God is progressive. What that means is it unfolds the more you go forward. If you start, if you will, at this wall over here and you make that Genesis, and if you make that wall over there, the Revelation, well then from Genesis to Revelation, as you read your Bible, God is unfolding his mystery a little bit at a time. Paul would say, we know in part. That is, it's being given to us a little bit at a time and eventually, Revelation 10 and verse 7 will say, the mystery is finished. At some point, we will have the totality of God's revelation. But as you're reading it, that's not provided. What happens today is those of us who live over here with the entirety of God's message in our hand, a nice volume, a collection of 66 books, portable, digital, we just take it around with it. It begins to be in our minds as if it's always been that way. It has not. And sometimes when you're reading it because you know it, you can't read the Bible in such a way as to almost read it backward. That is, you know it, so you assume they knew it. They don't know it. They don't know what you know. As the Bible is unfolding, it's being made known. And so each individual can know what's been revealed. He or she can't know beyond that. That's number one. Please keep that in mind as you read your Bible. Number two, the introduction of things is very important then. In light of that first point, When the Bible introduces a concept to us, an idea to us, words to us, when it tells us of a thing, then that becomes very important and significant, the introduction of that thing. And the reason for that is, as the Bible unfolds, it's going to build on that thing it introduced. Very often, it's not going to become a new thing. Very often, it's not going to become a different thing. It'll be the same thing with more information provided. And as it goes forward, that thing might be expanded. That thing might be given new particulars. That thing might be illuminated differently. But in the end, that thing is going to be consistent all the way through the Bible. Nothing going forward will ever contradict what's been introduced as you move forward in your Bible. Now, I tell you that because we've actually already done that and slid right by its importance. Last week, we were introduced to sin and death. What happens in preaching is very often you don't explain and delve into every single particular thing that's introduced. It's one of the reasons that sermons go long. Because if a preacher is trying to flesh out everything that's introduced, it'll it'll be a while. And so he doesn't. What he ends up doing is he writes a sermon for a point, and he wants to make a point from the Scriptures. He wants you to know something from God's Word, and so he develops that thought, and he makes that point at the exact same time. There are other things mentioned that are relevant. We talked about sin last week. We talked about death last week. But we didn't talk about the progression of sin. We didn't really delve deeply into how sin works from the, the moment that we began to lust after something until the point that we take it as we would need James 1:13 to 15 to, to, to more readily understand that. We didn't talk about the avenues through which sin and temptation come to us. We didn't talk about that. We would need 1 John two fifteen to 17 for that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. even Adam dealt with both of these things. Eve in particular in verse number six, as she saw it, she desired it, she took it. We would need to talk about those things. We didn't. We just kind of introduced it and and we would need to. When the Bible introduces something, that's exceedingly important. Number next, I've always wanted to say that. I don't know why. I heard somebody say that one time. That's cool. I think I'll say it at some point. Also, it's important to note the key figure in the Bible and any text that you're reading. Now, I'm going to urge that Genesis 3 is not about Adam and Eve and Satan. I'm going to urge that Genesis 3 is about God and his interaction with Adam and Eve and Satan. I think the same thing could be said for Genesis 4. Though we'll talk about Cain and Abel eventually, and though we did talk about Adam and Eve, and though we can learn from them and their actions, the text is ultimately about God and his interaction with Cain and Abel. As you open up your Bible, God wants us to learn certain things. He wrote it so that certain ideas and messages would be conveyed. And I'm convinced that the message that's conveyed, intended to be conveyed from Genesis 1 and 2, is the sovereignty of God. That the the fatherhood of God, that God is the, the giver of all things, the creator of all things, the one ultimately in charge of all things. We read that God gave to Adam and Eve. He gave to his children everything. In fact, he says as much. See, I've given you everything. God provides for his son. That's Genesis 2. It's not good. God looked at the man. And God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will solve the problem. I will make him one suitable for him. I'll do that. God provides for his son. God then commanded his children. Adam and Eve knew the commands of God. And then God corrected his children. Eventually, God delivered his children. If Genesis 1 and 2 is about the sovereignty of God— then Genesis 3 introduces us to sin. And God allows His children freedom. Sometimes when people talk about love, they misunderstand love. And so as a result of misunderstanding, they misunderstand the love of God. God didn't make them free and then refused to allow them to exercise that freedom. And so God allows His children freedom. And God allows His children choices. And when they made the wrong choice, God came to His children. God corrected his children. And what we learn in Genesis 3, 14, 15, 6, God will deliver his children. That's what love does. That brings us to Genesis 4. And if 1 and 2 is sovereignty, and chapter 3 is sin, now I'm going to urge that chapter 4 is sacrifice. God communes with his children. God communicates with his children. And what we learn here in the first introduction of that, God accepts one of his children, and God rejects one of his children. Let's begin with the background of Genesis 4. Verse number 1 and verse number 2, the Bible tells us, Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. What do we learn? Well, we learned that Adam and Eve had children. That's one of the things we learned. We also learned from Genesis 1.28 that that was always part of the plan. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God wanted them to multiply. Fill the earth. This also then makes it very plain that man is over the earth. He's over the animals. He's not one himself. Every time you find men and animals in the same context, there's a distinction made. The animals come to Adam to be named, and he names them, not the other way around. There is nothing among the animal kingdom suitable for Adam. That's what the Bible says. God makes it abundantly clear you're not one of them You're over them. In fact, don't just be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have dominion over it and rule it. Notice with me, if you will, Psalm 8 and what God says there about mankind. Man is not an animal. In fact, he's never been an animal. There's actually never been a day where man has not been intelligent. Again, Adam names the animal. There's never been a day where man has been crawling around on his on fours and, and, and grunting instead of talking. It's never been the case. Eve and the serpent have a conversation. Adam and Eve have a conversation. You listen to her voice, they're talking. They're intelligent from the very first time they're created. In fact, they're made in the image of God. As a result, Psalm 8 records things that God did for man. Someone is observing these things and talking about them. Verse number three, the Bible says, when I consider, someone is considering. But you'll notice what they're considering. Verse number three says, they're looking at the creation, and it must be marvelous. When I consider your heavens, the work of your hands, the work of your fingers. And so there is this person, this being someone looking at the creation of God, taking it all in, if you will. Maybe seeing the sun, the moon, and the stars. Maybe contemplating the expanse of it and the, the, the wonder of it. And, and they're seeing it. And apparently what they see is so grand That it all—it seems to cause them to ask God, in light of what you have done here, you'll note the question, what is man? To look at, we must not look like much compared to the sun, moon, and stars. But you'll notice what he says he observes that God has done for man, not the sun, moon, and stars. He says of man, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. You did that. It's not up to debate. It's not open for discussion. God did it and so it's done. Human beings are made a little lower than angels. That's what the Bible says. In fact, if you want a good exercise, go home this evening or this afternoon, get you a yellow post-it sticker, and and, and write these four things on your mirror, on the post-it, and then put it on your mirror. That's what you do. Now, if you want to use lipstick and write on your mirror, that's fine too. But what I want you to do is when you stand up and look into the mirror, see the message You are made a little lower than angels. You know, people might struggle a lot less with self-esteem if they began with God's esteem. God esteems you. How much? I made you a little lower than angels. Wouldn't it be nice to wake up in the morning and say, good morning, made a little lower than the angels? Good morning, crowned with glory and honor. Who? Every human being that bears the image of God is what? crowned with glory and honor. You want to think more highly of yourself? Then think of yourself the way God thinks of you. You want to think more highly of your fellow man? Well, then think of them the way God thinks of them. And God says he's made you a little lower than angels. He's crowned you with glory and honor. And he has set you over the rule of the works of his hands. He's given you dominion. He's entrusted you. He believes in you. He has confidence in you. God did that. He concludes by saying, you have put all things under his feet. Sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, he's not one of them, he's over them. That's what God did. We're to learn that from Genesis chapters 1 through 4. Adam and Eve had a child. Well, that's the way it's designed. God spoke the world into existence and then he put the seed of everything within itself. And while the miracle came first, he spake and it stood fast. Well, that's true. God said, let there be light. Light came. God said, let the firmament be separated. It happened. God said, let the trees come forth. They came forth fully grown. God did that. Absolutely. But then the Bible tells us that God put the seed of everything within itself. And so if the first generation of everything was the result of God speaking and God's power and God's miracle, the second and subsequent generations was the result of God's wisdom and design. The seed of everything is within itself so that it can reproduce itself. And everything does. Everything makes itself after its own kind. Life comes from life and that of the same Kind. Well, that's not just true in the animal kingdom and in the plant kingdom. That's true with humans. Humans make and reproduce other humans. When we read Genesis 4, 1 and 2, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Absolutely. That's by design. In fact, it's the reason God made them male and female. It's the reason God said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. What therefore God had joined together, let not man put asunder. Our Lord said, only men and women can reproduce. And friends, nothing has changed about that, nor ever will. The physical world that God made corresponds to a spiritual world that God made. And the physical realities, we learn, have a spiritual counterpart to them. This idea of seed and reproduction, it's not just true in the physical world, it's true in the spiritual world. In fact, the same language will be used. This idea of sowing and reaping, Genesis 1 and verse number 11, the seed bringing forth after its own kind. Paul will use the same language in Galatians 6, 7, and 8 to talk about spiritual truths. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap." He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall love the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's the same idea. There is reproduction and there is sowing and there is reaping. Well, there is a seed. Genesis 1:11. Everything produces after its own kind. The same thing is used to describe the word of God reproducing God's children over and over and over again. Luke chapter eight and verse number eleven. Now the parable is this: the seed is the word of God. What happens when the seed is sown into the good hearts of men and women? It reproduces a Christian. It doesn't make anything else. It reproduces after its own kind. We are born again. That's how it works. By incorruptible seed, 1 Peter 1. Cain and Abel are those individuals who are going to offer the first Recorded worship to God. The background brings us to this important fact God desires to commune with us. God desires to have us in His presence and He desires to be in ours. It's amazing and sometimes humbling to think that God wants to commune with us. Have you ever tried to call your favorite celebrity? You got them on speed dial, don't you? You just go up to them anytime you want to and get an audience, right? They would love to have you in their presence, right? No, but God would. It's an amazing, wonderful, humbling thing that God wants to commune with us. And Cain and Abel have that privilege and that honor. Verse number 3 of Genesis chapter 4 says, It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. This offering that Cain and Abel brought, note first of all, that it was to the Lord. And what that tells us is the object of our worship is God. The one to whom we bring our offering is God. He is the only appropriate and acceptable object of worship. That's what they did. That's what's introduced to us the first time the idea, the concept of men going before God and offering him something, the first time that's done, God is the object of that offering. Some would suggest that Cain didn't offer his best. That's nowhere stated in the text. And so we shouldn't add to the Word of God. That's not why he wasn't accepted. Someone says, well, Cain didn't offer the first. That's never said there's nowhere that's the problem. We'll get to the problem, but that's not it. What we do find next is God's reaction to the offerings. The second half of verse number four and the first half of verse number five. The Bible says, with reference to each man and his offering, unto, unto Abel or to, uh, unto Abel and his offering, the Lord had regard, and unto Cain and his offering, the Lord had not regard. What we learn the first time humans enter the space and presence of God to offer what would be sacrifice or worship, or what they're in his presence to bring him an offering. One of the people is accepted and one of the people is rejected. There is a lesson in that for us. We start with the sovereignty of God, chapter 1 and chapter 2 and We get to chapter 4 and God is seeking communion with man. Worship then, offering to God is to be governed and determined by God. And if you offer to God what you want versus what he revealed, then he will reject you. And if people would learn what God wanted us to in Genesis chapter 4, they wouldn't keep doing it to this very hour. Humanity does not determine acceptable worship to God. God does. It's hard for people to accept that. It's hard for people to understand it, that worship is not about us. It just feels like it should be, I suppose. Everything else is. The whole world revolves around my happiness. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? How can the world keep spinning if I'm not happy? How can everybody be okay if I'm not pleased? Surely somebody should come and fix this, make it all right. It's hard for people to understand that worship is not about our likes and dislikes. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our talents. It's about what God has revealed, and it's about Him. It's noteworthy to read the passage closely. In fact, I would just urge that whenever you read the Bible. Sure, if you want to read it fast, read it fast. But listen, go back and slow down and read the words. And it is noteworthy that the Bible says here, God didn't just reject the offering. The Bible says, Unto Cain and his offering, God had no regard. Unto Abel and his offering, God had regard. Tell you what? Put your name in the in the passage. Unto fill in your name. You will either be accepted or rejected. There's not a third option. Abel is accepted. Cain is rejected. Both the individual and the offering. Further, revelation on Cain and Abel explains things to us about them we don't get in Genesis 4. That is the nature of the progressive revelation. As it unfolds, sometimes you'll go huge stretches without talking about someone. The person didn't disappear, and oftentimes they didn't die. You'll just be reading along, and suddenly you won't hear about that person anymore. Adam lived to be 950 years old, I believe. But you just gonna keep reading about his life, though, not on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't suit God's purposes. God used it, gave us the information, and then God moved on. It almost feels sometimes like you're reading the Bible, you're going down this road, and then you hit a dead end. There's nothing else said. You pivot, you turn, and off you go somewhere else. That's just the nature of the Bible. And sometimes, as you read further and further along, somebody over there, an inspired writer, will be making a point here to his audience, and he'll reach back in the Old Testament and say, now listen, look here. He'll use the Old Testament just the way the Bible said you're supposed to. Siri, not now. I think she thought I was asking her a question, and so she answered. (laughs) I did turn off my cell phone and silence it, but he didn't say watch, and so (laughs) I didn't. Where was I? I think they said if you look up and to the left is where you'll find your memories. (laughs) We were talking about sometimes the writer's We'll take up an Old Testament example. Notice Hebrews chapter 11. Cain and Abel do appear again by way of conversation in the Bible. Somebody does talk about them. One of those people is the author of the Hebrews epistle. In talking about faith and encouraging the New Testament Christians the kind of faith they need to have, he talks about Cain and Abel all the way back to Genesis 4. And he says, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Both of them are mentioned. Abel offered by faith, wherefore he obtained witness that he was righteous. Abel was righteous. He did it by faith. God testified to it. He accepted his gifts and... Abel keeps on speaking, whether that means Abel's example keeps on speaking to us to learn or we keep speaking about Abel. Either way, his righteous and faithful life keeps on echoing, keeps on telling us we should do our actions to God by faith. Abel keeps saying it. The problem is we can't know the mind of God Unless God reveals His mind to us. When we start to try to figure out why was one accepted and why was one rejected, we need revelation to understand that. And that is the point of revelation. When it comes to coming into the presence of God, we have to have God's, God's Word, God's authority, God's revelation to know what we do in His presence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul explains this point in very clear detail. He starts a conversation with the brethren in Corinth because of their division. He's going to to denounce their division and tell them that they should be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Chapter 1 verses 10 to 17. And if they had known who they were and whose they were, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, then they wouldn't have been divided in the first place. If you read the first nine verses and you listen to what Paul says they are and what God has done for them, they are, first of all, the church of God that's at Corinth. They have, secondly, been bought by Jesus, given the gifts and provided forgiveness and and given all of these things. They're called saints. There's nothing about them that should be divided and have division, but they do. verses 10 to 17, he addresses in chapter chapter 1, verses 18 into chapter 2, at least maybe over as far as chapter 4, he begins to talk about wisdom. The wisdom that comes from God, the divine wisdom, the mind of God, and versus the wisdom of men. And he says with regards to the Jews and the Greeks, they are both missing the cross of Christ, and it's important. The Jews seek a sign, and so they're stumbling at the cross of Christ. The Greeks seek wisdom, human wisdom, and so they think it's foolish the cross of Christ. But to those of us who are saved, Paul says both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God under salvation. He continues that discussion in chapter 2. He begins to talk about God's mystery and how God made known his, his wisdom to mankind. Paul says it was the wisdom that they preached, beginning in chapter 1 down to verse number 5 or chapter 2, 1 down to about verse number 6. That's the wisdom we preach, not the wisdom of this world that comes to nothing, but the wisdom that's of God. He says in verse number 7, we speak this wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestinated unto the ages unto our glory. He says, that wisdom, no one knew it. The wisdom that was in the mind of God, when you and I start over there in Genesis and we start working our way down to the revelation, that slow and steady movement of God to unveil and unfold, he says, no one knew that. In fact, he says, no eye has ever seen it, no ear ever heard it, no mind ever imagined it. The things that God has prepared for them that love him. How did we come to know it? Paul, how did you come to know it? Paul says, but God has revealed them unto us. For what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Paul's point is simply this. We don't have the ability to read each other's mind. He uses us as an illustration to make his point about God. And the illustration is this. You and I, humanity, human beings, do not possess the ability to read each other's minds. We can stare in each other's eyes. We can read each other's body language. We can try to figure it out. Sometimes we're good at guessing, but we don't know. Sometimes I'll tell people you can't read each other's minds, and and, and I'll say something further, like if you've ever told people, I know what you're thinking, please stop it. This is your cease and desist order. Stop it you don't know what anyone is thinking. And then somebody will meet me out back and they'll say, well, I know what he's thinking. Or I know what she's thinking. Usually some married couple that's been married 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And they'll say, I know what he's thinking. The truth of the matter is you don't. What you know is his choices. Presented with two things, you know he's more likely to choose A than B. You probably have seen that over a period of time. So much so that you feel certain, if asked, he'll pick this one. In fact, some people can order each other's food. Drinks orders, yeah, I know what she want. When she's in the rest, yeah, I got it. Just give her a, a, a sweet tea. Uh, bring him an unsweet tea. He'll have a Coke. Gets back to the table, what do you have? I'll have a Coke. Oh, she was right, yeah. He has chosen Coke 4,000 times. I've seen him. He's going to have a Coke. I'm glad that we know each other, but that's not mind reading. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, you can't tell what's in another person's mind until they tell you with words out of their mouth. Their mind must take the thought and put it to words and then reveal it to you. And when they do, you can now know the mind of that person. Well, that's the illustration. What's the point? Try it with God. Who would... Of us go around saying, I know what God is thinking. Who would go around saying, I know what God wants me to do? It's one of the tragedies of people who keep convincing themselves, I need to figure out what God wants from me. I'm waiting on this. I'm going to know what God, he's, listen, God's revelation is in his word. In fact, that's Paul's point. The things we speak, he's revealed them unto us. Now we know the mind of God because God told us his mind. As you go through your Bible, please understand, Moses can only know what's behind him. He can't know what's in front of him. Abraham can know what's behind him. He can't know what's in front of him. No one can know more than what's revealed. But now then, when God does reveal something, shouldn't you do that? You see, that's the point of Cain and Abel, and that's the point we need to know. Nothing has changed about this simple method of communication with God. We see it again here with Cain and Abel. The one who hears God's Word and does something other than what he specified, that's the one that's disobedient. That's the one that gets rejected. In 1 John 3, verses 11 and 12, John also talks about Cain. He talks about love. And love for God and love for the brethren. In fact, in exhorting us to love, he says, for well, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Well, that's absolutely true. It's always been God's position. But then John wrote, not as Cain. Cain wasn't loving. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. Two things stand out about this passage. One, he says he was of the wicked one. We need to flesh that out. Secondly, he says his, his own works were evil. Now, there are people who wants to be Cain's lawyer in Genesis 4. They want to saunter right up alongside Cain and tell God all the mistakes that he made. And yet the Bible says Cain was evil. You have an evil man for a client. No, it's not God. It's Cain. The Bible says he was of the wicked one and evil. That's what the Bible says. Jude says there are those in his day who've gone in the way of Cain. What does it mean to be of the wicked one? What Jesus will tell us. John 8 and verse 44. Talking to those Jews who was also of the wicked one, he says, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father he will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. When he speaketh of a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. What does it mean to abide not in the truth? It means you were in the truth at one point, and then you left the truth. That's what it means. What does it mean for Abel? Oh, that's what he was. You should know that your soul is involved in worship. Jesus spoke to some religious people in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. It's recorded. And he said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many wonderful works in your name? These are religious people living lives in their mind for Jesus. And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Jesus doesn't say they were sincere. He says they were wicked and rebellious. What we are to do is to learn these things from the first recorded worship offered by God, offered to God by men. One person in his offering was accepted. The other person in his offering was rejected. Now, people are being told today, and I suppose maybe they've been told it for some time, as long as you're sincere. If it's in your heart to do it, God will accept it. They're also being told no one can judge you. How dare somebody tell you you can't do something in worship? How dare somebody tell you you can't do this particular thing in worship regardless of what it is? How dare somebody say you can't praise dance, you can't add the answer? How dare? Who do they think they are? Worship doesn't come from us. We don't determine it. Worship is turned by God. Amen. The question is, what has God said? And if these things are true, that all it takes is your sincerity, that nobody should try to squelch your talents, if that's true, maybe that individual could explain why God rejected Cain and his offering. If that's true, how come God didn't accept both? And if that's true, how would you explain Nadab and Abayu? I, I would love to hear the explanation. I mean, set forth the information. Help me understand. Help anybody understand how God could kill two men, priests no less, in the act of worship. Kill them. If, as long as you're sincere, as long as it's in your heart, as long as you want to do it, that nobody else can tell you. If that's true, how would we explain God killing people? He didn't kill Cain, he just rejected him. But Nadab and Abihu And they're not the only one. Uzzah died. He didn't get hurt. He didn't get injured. He died. In fact, it caused David great fear. They were carrying the, the ark on a cart, driven by new kind. It shook, stumbled. He reached out, touched it. Man died. David was so shaken by it, they parked it. When they went to move it again, David went to the scripture and found out that the priests were to carry it. He knew that. That nobody was to touch it. He knew that. In fact, in his own explanation recorded in 1 Chronicles 15, 13 to 15, David said, because we didn't follow the due order, because we did it a way other than what God revealed, a man lost his life. Somebody might say, well, Eric, God ain't killing people there. Well, that's true. It's not likely that you're going to fall dead in a public assembly of worship because you've added things to God's worship or taken things away. But do know this, you will lose your soul. Jesus didn't say they were sincere. Jesus didn't say I'm indifferent. Jesus said, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Those people are going to eternal hell. Both men knew what to offer because God told them. In fact, there's no way to explain these events that ends with God being righteous if he didn't. God has no basis to reject someone to whom he didn't give information when God tells us you can't read his mind. I can't read the mind of God. Okay. I'm going to enter his presence and offer him something. Okay. He didn't tell me what to bring. Okay. And now he rejects me? No, it's not okay. It's not okay. And it wouldn't be okay if he did that. It wouldn't be okay if he told Abel what to bring and not Cain. That wouldn't be okay either. That'd be unrighteous. Here's what we know. Abel offered by faith, Hebrews 11 and verse 4. What we know is the way faith comes, Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. We also know that Cain was of that wicked one, and so he didn't abide in the truth. We also know that his works were evil. Jesus said, Satan didn't abide in the truth and then Paul says one of the reasons a new Christian can't be an elder is lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil these are the reasons God rejected Cain and his offering they're also the same reasons he will reject us some say well everything we do is worship that's not true no in chapter 4 and verse number 3 the Bible says there came in the course of time On a particular day, they came and brought an offering unto the Lord. They didn't do this every day. There was a day. They brought it, they offered, and then they stopped. Verse number 8, they went out to the field. They weren't offering. In fact, that's when Cain commits murder. Verse number 14, he refers to himself as wandering, being a vagabond. He's not worshiping. Verse number 16, you'll find him moving and pitching, not worshiping. No, everything we do is not worship, but whatever God has revealed about it, that we must do. In fact, friends, when it comes to understanding reality, when it comes to making sense of the world, those questions that we deal with and grapple with, why are we here? How did we get here? What are we to do once we're here? And where are we going after we leave here? If you want some understanding of these questions and others, then you must start with God, not man. You must start in heaven, not on earth. And you must start with revelation from God, not the imagination of man. Oh, we read and we understand what God revealed. And then we trust him and we do what he says. And if in his revelation, though not always, but if in his revelation he's specific, then friends, we do it in the way in which he did it or said it. If God says build an ark of gopher wood, well, then you go find gopher wood. You don't go to the forest and get birch and elm and oak. You go find gopher wood. If God said 300, then make it 300, not 315 or 330. If God said 50, make it 50 then, not 60. If God says put the blood out in a particular place, and when I see the blood out, well, then you put the blood out right where God said put the blood out. If God said dip in the Jordan seven times, then you don't go to Parfa and Abana. You go to the Jordan and you dip seven times. You don't dip five, you don't dip eight, you dip seven. If God said march around the wall, then you march around the wall. You know, parents act just like God until they don't want to submit to God. But have a parent tell a child to do something specifically and watch what happens when they don't. Have a child, have a parent outline something for a child. I want this room done in this fashion. Come back and say, well, I didn't really want to do it the way you, wait, what? (laughs) I just felt like, oh, we got to get you some new feelings, buddy. (laughs) We don't accept this on any level. This afternoon, I'm going to let you go in less than five minutes. But you're probably going to go somewhere and eat. Don't you want the order right? Right. Oh, you don't care, right? I know you'll sit there, peruse the menu, and then you'll say, yes, I want this one, and don't add tomatoes, and don't add... No, 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 listen. Do not add... Do not give me olives. And what I want is... I want this, and then they come back with an entirely different thing, and you say, oh, yeah, I was... I was just funny. And anyway, give me those olives after all. And don't worry about the way you cooked it. I don't mind, because you don't actually have to do what I'm saying at all. No, I'm just... Nobody lives like this. And then we come to the God of heaven and we demand that he, friends, he's telling us in the fourth chapter of the Bible, the first time people into his presence to offer him something, one is rejected and one is accepted. There is a right way to worship God by faith, which comes from hearing and hearing from his word And there's a wrong way to worship God. One will lead to acceptance. One will lead to rejection. Friends, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to commune with your God, and if you want your eternal soul saved, then you need to investigate God's word to see what he has revealed from his mind. And when he is specific, you need to do that thing the way he has prescribed it so that he will accept. That's also true of salvation. You know we didn't get to it. Chapter 1 and 2, sovereignty. Chapter 3, sin. Chapter 4, sacrifice. Chapter 5, a genealogy. Chapter 6, salvation. We are going to be saved the way God has revealed it. And friends, what God has revealed is you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John eight twenty four. Change your heart, change your mind, repent, confess his name, and be immersed in water, buried with God in baptism, buried with Christ in baptism, Romans 6, 3 through 5, so that through that baptism and the operation of God, Colossians 2, through 13, you can then walk in newness of life, having your sins forgiven. If you've never done that, you need to. Please don't let somebody tell you it doesn't matter. Please don't let somebody tell you it's no big deal. You can just do it any way you want to because God has given a way to be saved, and you need to do it that way. Friends, if we can help you do that, we'd love to do so. If we can assist you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.